So math, as many of you know, is my specialty. But I'm going to bring you a little history quiz today, okay? I'm not that great at history, but I got a little history quiz for you to start this off. Are you ready for it? The answers must be in your heads, okay? Keep the answers in your heads. You don't want to give it away for anybody else. First question, what year did America declare its independence? Oh, you're all such good students. There's always that one, you know, that blurts it out. Would that be 1776? Did we get that right? Okay, good. Next one, fill in the blank. To be independent, we became a blank nation. Remember, keep it in your head. To be independent, we became a, the answer is, sovereign. Very good. Sovereign nation. Last one, true or false. To be sovereign is to be self-governed, to have supreme authority. True or false. Everyone? Ooh, we're afraid. True. That's the definition of sovereign, self-governed, supreme authority. So how many of you got all of them right? You can show of hands there. A couple of them right? Okay, no matter how you did, your reward is you get to listen to this sermon. Okay, that's your reward. Congratulations. You're the winner. No chicken dinner. Now the next question is not a quiz, but it is the big question that I believe this sermon will answer for you, and it is this question, do you understand God's sovereignty? Do you understand God's sovereignty? That he has supreme authority over the whole world and your life. That he has an actual plan, a specific plan for your life, and there really is no such thing as luck. My son was asked just recently, do you believe in luck? And as a 12-year-old, I was curious as to what his response would be to that question, do you believe in luck? And his response was, no. God just does it. And I love that because it was so matter-of-fact and it was just a simple explanation of this great, really couldn't be confusing definition of God's sovereignty. God just does it. I love that definition. That's his understanding. God is sovereign. God is sovereign whether people will acknowledge it or not. Because there are people who will not acknowledge it. But God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his plan. He's in charge with supreme authority. But here's the mystery, I think. How is God in complete control, and yet we have free will? Isn't that somewhat of a mystery? Because we're not puppets, are we? We don't have a, a puppeteer over us, a puppet master. We're still choosing. We're still making our own decisions. We're still taking action. Yet, nothing we can do will ever mess up God's plan which is good news because we have a tendency to mess things up. Do we not, people? Some of you are really, really good. You're extra good at messing it up, and you know it. But you can't mess up God's plan. He is sovereign. And friends, if you'll hear it today, you really need to hear it. I hope you lean in on the edge of your chair and you hear this. With your free will, you can join God in his work. With your free will, you can choose to join God in His work. You can be the one that God uses to accomplish His plan. And that is what Esther did. That's the book of Esther. The key verse is in chapter 4, verse 14, when her cousin Mordecai says to her this, For if you keep silent at this time, Esther... 
Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Why? Because Mordecai believed God is sovereign. But you and your father's house will perish. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, my favorite words, for such a time as this. And that's our title this morning, for such a time as this, to join God in his work. I love the book of Esther. I love it. It's a wonderful story. It's so amazing. It's been made into movies because it has such an awesome, twisty, fun ending. And at the same time, God is in control. I give you the quickest version of the story of Esther. She was a quiet, young Jewish woman living in a foreign land, Persia. Persia was the world power at the time. It's after exile. The Jewish people had been exiled out of their homeland. She was being raised by her cousin named Mordecai because her parents had passed away. She probably had no real big dreams for her future, just a simple life, but God had other plans for her. It was the queen of Persia who made a mistake. The king divorced her. And out of all the beautiful young virgins in the land, Esther was the one chosen to be the next queen. Imagine that. I wonder who planned that. Now trouble came to her cousin Mordecai and actually for all the Jewish people in the entire province, all the, out of all the provinces of Persia, and the king's right-hand man named Haman hated Mordecai, hated the Jewish people. Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him because he was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't bow down to anyone but the one true God. Haman convinced the king that all the Jews must die. He signed it into law. 127 provinces from India all the way to Ethiopia. The date was set. The clock was ticking. The end was near. How would God rescue his people? Esther. Esther. She was the answer. God would use her. She could ask the king for help. But she could only speak to the king when he called for her. Because if she went to him and he didn't do what he needed to do for her to speak, and that was to extend his golden scepter, she would have to die. Mordecai urged her, for such a time as this, Esther asked for a three-day fast. The moment of truth came. The story folds, unfolds unbrilliantly. I feel like it's a Hollywood-type um, ending. The king allows her to speak. Haman's anti-Semitism is revealed, and he's actually hanged on the very gallows he set up for Mordecai. The king allows the Jewish people to defend themselves. They are saved. And many will read the book of Esther and think she is the hero of the story. But I'm here standing before you to tell you she's not the hero. God is the hero of the story. God is always the hero of the story. He saved his people. Esther joined him in his work. God is the hero of your story. God's plan is to redeem the whole world through His Son, Jesus Christ, and God wants you to join Him in that. Will you be like Esther? That's my question for you this morning. Will you be like Esther? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this mighty word this morning, this wonderful story of Esther. I get to tell it, and I'm just so excited to do it. I, I just, I'm so amazed. I love it. It's, a, it's like that movie that we've watched so many times that it's one of our favorites. The story of how you used Esther and Mordecai, how they joined you in your plan to save your people. God, you're still saving people today. 
And Father, there may be some here today that have never really confessed their faith in you, that have never said, I want to be a Christian. I want, to, I want forgiveness of my sins. I want to know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. God, may today be the day that they make that step towards you. They take that next step and surrender their life to you and trust in you and know that you are in control of everything. And that a life with you is better than any other life that we could ever come up with on our own. For you have plans for us, wonderful plans, as Jeremiah said, plans to prosper us and bring us joy. I pray, Father, we'd hear that this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Now, I know some of you said you read this book, and if you didn't, I hope that you will read this book after I share this uh, exciting story, the book of Esther. It, uh, I'm going to kind of go through it as an overview. That's our goal this year, going through the whole Bible in a year, and many of you have been doing that. You've been able to read each book, and we're jumping around um, you know, diff- to different books. Next week, we'll be going through the Gospel of Mark, which is um, um, kind of the, the culmination of um, um, facing trials, serving through suffering, all these books that we've been covering, James, um, we looked at, and Job, and all these different, they all kind of had a little... Um, I put them together um, purposely, and we end with Mark next week. But here we are in Esther, and uh, the book of Esther begins kind of really not talking about Esther. It talks about Persia and their king, and their king, it's kind of hard to pronounce, so I pronounce it Ahasuerus. That's how it helps me remember it. Aha, because it starts off with A-H-A. But that that name, Ahasuerus, is a title for the king of Persia. You might recall that name in Daniel chapter 9, because Darius the Mede was also uh, was a son of Ahasuerus. Um, at this point in the history, to give you some background what's going on, um, the Jews were living in exile, uh, scattered all throughout Asia, and it was the Babylonians who overtook uh, the, the southern kingdom of Jerus- uh, called Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom had been taken by the Assyrians, And um, the Babylonians would be taken over by the Medes and Persians, and then comes the Greeks with Alexander the Great, the world powers that took place, all of these um, prophesied by Daniel. It's around 480 B.C. So to give you a little time frame, that's where we're at in history. It's about 480 B.C. These exiles are living really far east of Jerusalem in a little town, well, maybe it was a big town, called Susa. Susa was the winter capital, if you will, the winter residence of the king of Persia. Susa is also where Nehemiah lived. If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, you know he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in around 445 B.C. So that's about 335 years later. It's very possible Nehemiah and Esther had coffee someplace. I don't know. Okay, but they may have known each other. They're living in the same time frame, if you will. The first chapter of Esther shows the queen of Persia is required to be submissive to the king. And she's not submissive in chapter 1, so she's removed from her position. Now, don't get any ideas, fellas, okay? All right? Because this is not the biblical understanding of submission. You have to go to Ephesians chapter 5 for that, okay? Don't get any ideas. Chapter 2. The search begins for a new queen. Ladies, you're going to love this. It's a 12-month beauty contest in which every single day is a spa day. Imagine that, ladies. Every day, you're going to the spa for a whole year. Wouldn't you love it? Wouldn't it be great? 
All right, well, don't get too excited because when you sign up for this beauty contest to be the next queen, if you don't get selected, then you are put into the um, harem, if you will, of the king, and you are a sex slave the rest of your life. So there are some serious consequences for not winning that big grand prize of being the next queen. Gives us perspective because Mordecai, who raised Esther by himself or with his family, um, he enters her into this contest. He must have been confident in her beauty, and rightfully so because she was very beautiful. Esther is actually her Persian name. Her Persian name. It wasn't the name she was born with. The name she was born with was Hadassah, which actually means myrtle, like the beach, but really is a tree. Okay, Myrtle is her, her, her born, the name she was when, at birth, but Esther is her Persian name. It means star, and it's rightfully so. She shined. She shined. She was stunning to look at. When she walked in the room, heads turned and jaws dropped. I mean, that's how beautiful this woman was. So beautiful, she won the contest. She's the queen. The king chose her. Everybody knew she was the rightful winner to this. And it appears with her new role of being queen, she gets to bring Mordecai into a better job. She gives him a better job. He's now um, at the king's gate, we see in chapter 2. And that's important because in his new role, he is able to uncover a plot to assassinate the king. He hears two of king, the king's eunuchs planning an assassination, and he tells Esther, and Esther gets the news to the king, and the plot is foiled, and the king is saved, but Mordecai gets no reward. Yet, God's timing, right? You'll see when he gets his reward, it's the perfect timing. God had it all planned out. Chapter 3. In comes the evil, right? Every great story has good and evil. And the evil, his name is Haman. Haman was promoted by the king as the right-hand man, and he gets, he's got an ego bigger than our presidents, okay? It's a really big ego, okay? Everyone has to bow down to him, but one wouldn't do it, and his name was Mordecai, right? Mordecai wouldn't do it. I'll give you some scripture in Esther chapter 3, verse 5 on the screen. When Haman saw Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. That's what pride does to to a person. Verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He didn't just hate Mordecai. They made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom, 127 provinces. Verse 7, in the first month, in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, and purr is a lot, like a dice, like a die, casting it, okay? It's a, it's a, some would call it luck, but it's not. They didn't view it that way. Haman, day after day, uh, um, uh, they cast purr, day after day, they cast it month after month to the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, verse 8 says, Haman says to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad. This is where he's presenting his case to the king, because he knows what he wants to happen. He wants all the Jews gone. And um, they're dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws, O king, are different from those of every other people. They don't keep your laws. They have their own laws. 
And that's not to the king's profit to tolerate them anymore. And so therefore, the king is sort of tricked to sign into a law, an edict, that uh, all the Jews would be exterminated, killed. That's Haman's plan. Now, Haman has a special plan for Mordecai, because he hates him so much, and he assembles a gallow, if you will, it's a pole, that's 70 foot, 75 foot high. I mean, that's seven and a half stories high, okay? And he's going to impale him on that pole. That's his plan. Now, I know when you read the scripture, you'll see it says to hang Mordecai. And we always think wild, wild west, right? Hang someone, it's a noose. But that's not how they did it. In this time, they impaled him on a pole. Some would say the Jews' fate had been sealed. The die had been cast. But they said the pur had been cast. P-U-R, the pur had been cast. Um, That's important, which I'll share with you um, why at the end. So the Jews' end is near, and they are in trouble. So what do they do? Well, they call on God. Do you call on God when you're in trouble? I do. Okay? But here's the thing. In this book, God is not mentioned. You read the book. Did you notice that? The word God, the word Lord, never mentioned in the book of Esther. Out of all the books in the Bible, I, don't, I think this is the only one. And there's a reason for it. I believe it was intentional. I believe Mordecai was writing this and showing that God is sovereign. That he works things out behind the scenes, if you will, working through us. And he can do that and accomplish his plan, even with our free will. He chose to work through us to to accomplish this plan um, through Mordecai and Esther. Now Mordecai says to Esther, which is what I'm saying to you today, will you join God in his work? And he says it in his own way in verse 14. On the screen, if you keep silent, he says, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. That's what he believed. God is sovereign. You and your father's house are going to perish, but who knows if you're not queen for such a time as this. Why are you queen, Esther? He probably looked her right in the eye. Why are you the queen for such a time as this? And I asked the same question to you to look at your own life. I remember when I first became a Christian, and I... Was, had all kinds of questions, and I, I had a mentor who was, was pouring into me and answering my questions, and, and one time I remember him specifically saying, why do you think you've done these things in your life, Matt? Because now look what God has done. He's been preparing you this whole time. Even when I didn't walk with God, God was preparing me for such a time as this. You look at your own life. Where do you work? Where do you go to school? Where do you live? God has been preparing you for such a time as this. Will you join him in his work? I hope you will. I pray that you will. Esther calls on God by announcing a fast. With fasting comes prayer. We all know that. After three days of fasting and prayer, she goes before the king to try to save her people. She answers the call. She's going to go forward. And this is the scary part, because remember, if the king does not extend his golden scepter to her, which is like a rod, if he doesn't reach that out to her, she's dead. If he doesn't like her, woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day, all right, had a bad meal or something, and he doesn't do this, she's out. The search is on. New new beauty contest. (laughs) 
right? He has to extend that. And by the way, if God doesn't extend his scepter to you, you can never go to heaven. The good news is God did it already. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. You're forgiven when you believe in Jesus Christ. God has already extended his scepter to you. All you have to do is believe. It's amazing. The scepter is extended. Esther speaks. She requests that the king and Haman join her the next day for a banquet. That's the plan. Haman has no idea, though, that she's going to reveal or uncover his evil plan. Now, the next part is honestly just so too good. I mean, it's too good to be true, right? I mean, you would think someone is scripting this for a Hollywood movie, right? And, and I wonder who that is, right? God had this all planned out. That very night, before the next day, when Esther is going to tell the king what's going on, the king can't sleep. He can't sleep. So what does he do when he can't sleep? He reads something really boring. Does that work for you? All right, pick up a book that's really, really boring, okay? Uh, I liken it to, he, read, he had the Chronicles read to him, the history of all the, it's like the most boring meeting minutes you've ever heard, right? You've ever been in a meeting before? Sorry, I know we have church meetings here too, and when we have to read the meeting minutes, everybody's like, oh, God, all right, whatever. Get through it. Come on, Chrissy, read faster. <laughs> So he's trying to doze off while the chronicles are being read, and he hears something that's really interesting to him, actually. He finds out that Mordecai saved his life and never got a reward. So he finally dozes off. He wakes up the next day, and he says, I want to honor Mordecai. Perfect timing. So he asks Haman. I love it. He goes to his right-hand man, Haman. Haman, the guy who hates Mordecai. And he says to him, Haman... How should I honor a man who has helped the king so much? Well, Haman's an egomaniac. He thinks he's talking about him, right? So he says, oh, man, king, you've got to get the royal robes, and you've got to put it on them, and you've got to get the royal crown, and you've got to put it on them, and you've got to get the horse that only the king rides, and you've got to let him ride it on her, and you've got to parade them all over town. And the king says, great idea. Let's do it for Mordecai. Haman blew a gasket at that point. I mean, he lost it. You, he can't even believe it. This guy, he can't stand, he hates, and now he has to take him around town when he thought he was talking about himself. Well, it only gets worse for Haman. Queen Esther will reveal his plan right in front of the king, and Haman doesn't know what to do. He falls all over Esther, which the king thinks he's making a pass at her, and that's it. She's, he's done. He gets hanged on the very same gallows that he set up for Mordecai. The king also issues an edict to allow the Jewish people to save themselves, fight back. Mordecai is promoted. It's an amazing ending to a wonderful story. And by the way, to this day, the Jewish people celebrate this. They celebrate this. And one thing that they do, I heard, is very interesting. To sort of celebrate Haman's demise, they eat Hamantash. Hamantash stands for Haman's ears. They make triangle cookies <laughs> that look like ears, and they eat them on this Jewish holiday called Purim. P-U-R-I-M. Esther 9, verse 22, as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies 
And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food, Hamantash, to another, and gifts to the poor. Jump down to verse 24. Haman the Agagite, the son of, the son of uh, Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, had cast per the lots, to crush and destroy them. And then in verse 26, they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. The Jewish holiday Purim is celebrated every year around February or March, uh, commemorating Esther and Mordecai's faithfulness because they chose to join God in his work. Now, I have an important question for you. We call this the call to action. You heard a great story. It's a, it's a wonderful message. It's right in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. But how do you respond to it? How do you respond to God, which is really my definition of worship? How do you worship God? How do you respond to him? You hear a message like this, how do you respond to that? When you hear that story, do you say to yourself, like many will, wow, Esther was so lucky. Or perhaps you might say, well, Mordecai was probably this genius, had the whole thing figured out, and uh, he wrote the story anyway, so, you know, it's kind of his, his thing. He had it all under control. Or some will just not even believe the story and think it's all made up because that's what they think about the Bible. Anyway, some people believe in luck. Some people only believe in what they can control. And some people just won't believe at all, no matter how much proof. But I don't care about those people. I care about you. What do you believe? What do you believe? Because I believe God is sovereign. And my son believes God just does it. But what do you believe? And based on what you believe, how do you act? How do you live out your life? Because if you don't believe God is sovereign, then you will just make decisions that only benefit yourself and hope that you get a lot of good luck along the way. But if you believe God is sovereign, that he's in control, and that he has a plan, a specific plan for your life, then you will constantly look for ways to join him in his work. And the more you look, the more you will see, because God is always at work. Amen? Amen? He is always at work, and my prayer is that you would join him in that work. But it's your choice. How will you respond to God? I'm going to pray. We have a final song this morning. God, I pray this morning that as we hear your word, that we respond to you. I pray we worship you with all our heart. I pray, Father, that we would give you our very best in everything we do. I pray that we would understand that you are sovereign. You have supreme authority. You are in control. I thank you, Father, for this great day, this day of worship, that we set it aside for you. We've come to hear your message, your word. We've come to bring our tithes, our offerings. We've come to sing praises to your name. We've come to serve. We've come because we love you. And we love each other. I pray for this church to grow and grow, not in numbers, but in our faith and in our trust in you. That we grow as disciples and we make more disciples. Because that's what your son Jesus called us to do. 
and we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.